Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I'm Dr. Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, I will be sitting down again with Steve Bayshore, uh, the Director of Historic Trades here at George Washington's Mount Vernon, and we're going to be talking about whiskey, again, because people like it. Uh, quick note, if you'd like to purchase any of the whiskey uh, or distilled spirits that we talk about in this episode, uh, you can go to mountvernon.org slash podcast, and we will have a direct link to the shops so that you too can drink along, because I'm funnier if you've been drinking. And now my interview with Steve Bayshore. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming back onto the show. It's good to be back. I think we touched on quite a bit the last time we spoke, um, and the conversation revolved around the grist mill and some of those operations and and somewhat into the distillery operation mm-hmm. as it developed in the 1790s here at Mount Vernon. So I think there's more we can dig into there. Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the, the feedback from our, our listeners was, uh, you know, everyone appreciates a good grist mill and, and flour, but uh, there seems to be something special about distilled spirits that people just like. They gravitate to it, yeah. and the mo- and spirits today are, are going so huge, particularly the whiskey market. And I think when you tie in our founding father and the entrepreneurial side of him mm-hmm. to a product like whiskey, it draws in a lot of interest. Yeah, I think uh, when when we do the the uh, the leadership institute programs, we're telling about some of the different options. When all of a sudden they find out they can do a, a whiskey tasting as an example of George Washington's entrepreneurial spirit, they <laughs> they get really intrigued. Um, well, let's just say things start off. Uh, you know, there's been some interesting things you all have been up to in the distillery. How how have things been since we last talked? Well, the fall we. Uh rolled through the end of the regular tour season like we do, and then we usually make a production run in November. And I've been talking about trying this all year long last year, but I wanted to see if we could make something a little different in the whiskey um, area, and so we decided to make a George Washington bourbon for mm-hmm. the first time. A uh, couple reasons for that. Well, you have to clarify, first, in the 18th century, bourbon didn't exist as a, as a type or class yeah. of whiskey. There was corn liquor, and we know rye whiskey mm-hmm. uh, and a variety of other brandies on the market and imported uh, Madeiras and brandies as well from Europe. But I was looking through the farm reports a couple of years ago, and when they first made whiskey here at Mount Vernon, Washington being frugal with money, <laughs> he didn't start by building a 75-foot by 33-foot distillery just because farm manager James Anderson said it was a great mm-hmm. idea. Washington agreed to have whiskey made on site by the grist mill, but they used an existing structure, which was the cooperage. And the cooperage is where they made all the barrels for the flour shipments, and and that was within 30 to 40 yards of the grist mill and was built contemporaneously with the grist mill, so that came into being in 1770. So Washington wants to entertain the possibility of making money off whiskey, but he tells Anderson, you can use the cooperage. They set mm-hmm. up two stills in there and made about 600 gallons in 1797. And, and we tell that story on tour all the time, but what I found out was that they didn't have enough rye in those mm. early stages. So James Anderson writes both in a letter and listed in a farm report that he's using wheat tailings, which is at the end of the sift of the wheat flowers that comes off the lesser mm-hmm. flowers, uh, and corn. Mm. So we all know that Bourbon's mostly corn. By law today, 51% corn, and it'll have secondary grains, which are flavoring grains, and oftentimes they're rye. Mm-hmm. But there are, so, are, are out there on the market these weeded bourbons, which we all enjoy. One of the key ones, I mean, Maker's Mark, that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. So you have a certain percentage of corn, 
and the secondary flavoring grain is wheat. So I thought, well, here's an opportunity to to try to make a wheated bourbon. So in order to make this work, you know, we, we, we work with a lot of very distillers who are excellent and have over the years, but our key consultant the last couple of years has been Lisa Wicker, who is actually a head distiller and president at Widow Jane Distillery in Brooklyn. And she's worked mm-hmm. with That's one of our... That's a tasty one. It's yeah. a very good yeah. whiskey. And she's been behind the uh, small batch that they're doing, the five-barrel small batch, which is really excellent. So I talked to her through the mm-hmm. year, and we went back and forth. And and she worked out a protocol for us, you know, as she's written our other rye protocol. And, and then we kind of settled in on a 70% corn, 20% wheat and 10% malt for mm-hmm. this this bourbon. The other thing I wanted to do with it was being a historian is connect elements of history to it. We always do that here, as mm-hmm. you know, in the work you do and the things you, uh, you lecture about or teach about. It's all about that story we're mm-hmm. tying together. And so realizing that Kentucky was once a province of Virginia... And knowing that Washington... All, all, all negative emails can be sent directly to uh, Steve's account rather than mine. Well, it's good to know. Even if it's true, Kentucky. <laughs> it's good to know, though, that that changed. And Kentucky mm-hmm. became a state during Washington's first term, I believe, mm-hmm. right at the cusp of the second term. And he owned land in Kentucky, in Grayson County. Mm-hmm. So there's a nice, rich history there. And, and we also know that as people move west, that whiskey was a key thing, as we know, in the settlement of Kentucky. In fact, it even goes to Maryland history as well, because uh, some of the early Catholics that were driven out of Maryland moved to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And one of those families on the early lists, if you look through those, which I've done a little, little digging on it, you'll see the Hayden family moved from Maryland to Kentucky. There's mm-hmm. Basil Hayden right there. And there's, there's more research to be done there, but I believe there's a deep connection. And so what I decided was uh, we sourced the white corn instead of yellow corn from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And we used our wheat supplier from the farm in Virginia we used and our normal malt supplier. So you basically have a story of telling layers of stories here with the bourbon. Number one, we know they were making corn liquor here, even though they didn't call it bourbon. And we're tying these two states together that are deep in America's early history and connections to Washington and whiskey at the same time. So we, uh, being a new thing, we, you know, you're a little more um, focused on making sure it works out well. (laughs) Because the last thing I want to report up the chain of command is, well, we tried A and B, but, you know, knowing that uh, Lisa's skill sets in developing mashes and protocols is so excellent, we we worked through it with our team, and, and she was there a number of days as well, and we ended up producing more proof gallons than we've ever produced in the distillery hmm. to date. So close to 800 proof gallons were made in about three and a half weeks, and we f- filled uh, 14 53-gallon barrels with George Washington bourbon, so we're not none of it's in small barrel. That's going to mean a lot in aging it longer mm-hmm. and having better flavors. And uh, so it was an exciting project. And uh, at the end of the run, everybody was very proud of it. The crew was morale was really high. It was good to see a lot of people step up. We had, uh, in fact, one day because you know, we rotate our team through there. I had one day where all the stills were being run by women. Mm. And I thought that was excellent, you know, because if you look at distilling and brewing history, if you go back 16th century, it was all done at household. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all these distillers today that you see in the industry, the women that are coming on, it's a little deep history there and women in alcohol. So I think it's kind of nice when we hit touchstones. Yeah. Well, so the... uh the, the the corn liquor that Washington was making, would I be correct in assuming um, that's sort of similar to the, the batches 
uh, I believe he did of the rye that it would have been unaged yeah. historically. Yeah. Yeah. Back then they didn't barrel age. Now yeah. barrel aging was known of, mm-hmm. and it was done by some, but more in Europe, from yeah, what yeah. my research is showing me. You know, the the, the brandies, the cognacs. Uh, but here people knew of it. In fact, Washington received a gift one time of a barrel of rum that was 28 years old. And the letter he wrote in thanks, you can tell he knew the value of what he'd been given. Yeah. And so if you were wealthier and the market was there, there was certainly age spirit. And I've come across some more records in the Caribbean about spirit that's 15 to 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. It's kind of a vein that I'm mining right now for some stuff I'm working on to hopefully you know, write something about this. But I think, like any dynamic market, there's people looking for niches and looking for revenue. Yeah. And there are people that would pay for a good spirit that was aged. But in Washington's case, they put it in a barrel, usually a 31-gallon barrel, what our records indicate, sometimes half barrels. But they are not toasted or charred on the inside. It's clear oak, mm-hmm. and it's just a vessel to get it into Alexandria. So yeah. the, the joke we use on tour for our guests is it ages from here to Alexandria. Yeah. And they tapped it right away and drank it that way. I mean, you know, Alexandria was such a booming town in that time, you know, since it's the primary port for what's, you know, the new federal city that's being built. Uh, it makes sense that would be a, a market um, that you'd want to exploit and one that might not have been terribly concerned with the well, finer qualities of I, barrel aging. <laughs> well, I wonder sometimes what did whiskey taste like really in yeah. 1800 or 1750. Um Rum, there's some records you can read where people talk about the difference between Caribbean rum and what was made off the molasses here in, in the colonies. Huh. And so there are some descriptors you get. And, um, but I think that's another area of study. It'd be interesting to see what documents are out there that speak of this. Because the more I dig into this topic, like we we're talking about, there's a high interest in, in alcohol and spirits and, and the historic uh, history behind it. I think there's a lot of unwritten stories that are laying there to be told and uh, – you know, we're we're trying to dig into that. Yeah, well, and like I said, I know uh, you know the, the 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 previous episode you and I had done uh, was one of the ones we actually got the most feedback ever about. Uh, so thank you to all of our listeners that that wrote in and and we we heard you that there was uh, you know that you 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 do want to see. Uh, apparently, you're all eager for Steve and I to drink on air. Uh, and, and, and do sort of a, a, a tasting episode. We are working on that uh, with our new media team to, to get the camera set up for that. So there, this will, in fact, be our first trilogy uh, that we will do together uh, on this show. Um, but, you know, what better way to start a trilogy than one that's also going to involve drinking by the end? I uh, would agree. And I think perhaps it would be an opportunity to do some comparison and contrasting mm-hmm. various spirits that we have made as we talk about the history of those. It's kind of my thought. And then we could... Maybe pull a sample of the bourbon then. Yeah. You know, it's only been in the barrel for a short time. So give it a little more time. We can see where it's at. And then we also had the rum project. I don't remember if we yeah, talked a little bit about that. that. Yeah, can... that's on my, 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 my nose here to, to, to bring up. Uh, and, and, and for anyone that's really intrepid, we, we can't even uh, uh, do, do a shopping list ahead of time if anybody wants to, to drink along uh, and, and acquire that. We, we could even make that happen while I'm thinking sort of out loud here, but... Uh, I guess you'll have to it, air that episode in the evening as opposed to yeah, breakfast yeah, time. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, hey, if somebody wants to listen to the podcast over breakfast and, and drink before work, you know, I'm not going to judge. Well, it reminds me of a Hawkeye Pierce joke from MASH where he was drinking in the morning <laughs> and his line was snap, crackle, and burp. Yeah, So, nice. um, But, yeah, I think it's it's 
getting to the next layer down, we'll yeah. do that because people want to know about the flavors and the tastes. And and as you said, though, I think whiskey as a flavor profile in 1770 or 80 or 90 is different than what we would see today. Well, yeah, I know. We When I was uh, teaching at West Point, uh, 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 it's what happens when a bunch of history nerds get together on the 4th of July at a place like the United States Military Academy. We started looking up uh, historic cocktail recipes uh, to make for our 4th of July party the history department was going to have. And uh, we, we balked on a few of them because it is, uh, you know, there's just such different flavor profiles for, for what they consumed. Mm. Uh, you know, you're talking a lot of drinks spiced with nutmeg and cinnamon and uh, stuff that now we almost think of specialty drinks at Starbucks only certain times a year. But that, that was the seasonings that, and, and the, um, you know, they didn't have bitters yet for, for their cocktails, so this was the sort of stuff they were using. Uh, especially one of them uh, involved a, a, an uncooked egg. That one we definitely passed on. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, too. I've read some texts from the 18th century where as things move in markets, I mean, I, I, I hearken it back to Egyptology, and when all the pyramids were found, you know, all these knockoffs are made. Mm-hmm. People are, you know, flooding markets with things that are not ancient but making money. Well... You can read in the record in these books, it's how to make this taste like French brandy. Yeah. How to make this taste like cognac and some of the additives, <laughs> you know, gunpowder, yeah. um, what's in the spittoon was in one of them. Yeah. So they're trying to color what, what later became known as rectifying, you know, coloring or yeah. flavoring of whiskeys. That goes way back. And again, it's people trying to make a dollar. You mean you don't just add in uh, corn syrup and... and, and Red dye number seven to no. more whiskeys. No, we do it. They called it something different, I think. <laughs> there are a lot of dyes, a lot of colorings, and I think that that later came to the battle between, you know, the rectifiers and the distillers that happened in the 19th and 20th century yeah. to try to clarify some of those issues. But it's interesting how far back it goes. Yeah. Because <clears throat> I think sometimes we think these are new arguments, and uh, in the distilling community and the people that I've met, one of the discussions that's been interesting and and again, uh, Lisa Wicker and I have talked about it, is the sourced whiskey discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of brands out there today, and they're sourcing whiskey, and some people think that's not a great thing to do. If you're upfront and transparent, I think it's fine. You know, where's the whiskey really coming from? Maybe until you get your stills up and running. But from what I've read and, and learned is that there were a lot of people dealing in whiskey, and it mm-hmm. came from a lot of different places. Sometimes millers were middlemen with whiskey because they – had the grain, and the and the guy wanted to unload the barrels, a small batch, or what they would call just a small run. And so that person then takes them to market. Yeah. So I think sometimes back then you didn't know where it all came from, but yeah. you wanted the whiskey. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's what I was kind of thinking just now as you were talking about, um, is, is, you know, in, in your research in into 18th century spirits, is, is anybody uh, approaching, you know, to use sort of a more modern term, um, you know, brand recognition for their product? Are there, do you, when do you start to see uh, individual distillers being sort of explicitly recognized as I would prefer, you know, Bob's distillation over just any other one? When, when, when do you start to actually um, see, not, not brands in the modern sense, but... Recognition uh, of, yeah. of quality. Yeah, craft, craftsman quality. I've only read some about this... Uh, so I won't say that I'm the qualified expert on, okay. on all of this, but I do think it was probably regional at first, very regional. Yeah. And then if you get so into the region is known for having especially good. Or if there was a distillery of, okay. of note 
you know, gotcha, areas gotcha. around Maryland, there's a lot of rye in Maryland. The story of rye in Maryland is very deep. So there are a lot of um, distillers that go back into the 1820s that start to form what we would call more larger companies mm-hmm. than just a country distillery or a small estate distillery. Uh, I've been reading a little bit on Maryland in the 1820s and 30s recently, and there was a list I found of, you know, uh, tradesmen. Mm-hmm. And you can see these people listed as distillers. So that's a thing I'm going to go back to, dig a little deeper. Yeah. But I think that one could start to say brands or what we know as brands probably more like 1860s and 70s. Yeah. Could be earlier. Again, I'm not the qualified expert on it, but Old Forester in Louisville was the first one to bottle mm. whiskey in glass. And they just reopened their, in their original oh, building wow. down right there on Distillers Row, or whatever, as they call it down there in Louisville. I believe it's called Distillers Row. But big resurgence in people building back in those early buildings. Michter's Distillery has just opened up down there. So I think uh, probably that mid-19th century, you start to see this happen as whiskey's changing again and going from more uh, larger producers that actually put it in glass and have a label. Yeah. Because well, prior to that... They have a distribution network with the rail lines and stuff that they can get it into other regions. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I've read a lot about uh, in various... Like, I know you mine old newspapers. Yeah. Because there's great ads and things like that yeah. that talk about these spirits. And and so that, that going from regional to a broader national market, you can see it's being shipped to New York, it's being shipped to Philadelphia, all these sort of things. But in our period, I think we're still in that... That growth yeah, period of boutique, yeah. regional, um, Washington being a rather large distiller, but by 1810 or 1820, there's over 10,000 distilleries in Virginia, Maryland alone. Mm-hmm. So it's just such a part of the economy. Yeah. In a way, much like every five miles, there's a water mill. Yeah, yeah. Only the whiskey probably got a better return than flour, <laughs> <laughs> it seems to. Uh, well, so two thoughts. One, uh, for any of our listeners, uh, you know, to something you said, if 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 you're ever bored or just want to be entertained, um, go pull up a, a, an old like 18th century newspaper, uh, you know, on our library's website is, can, can facilitate that for uh, a lot of our, our listeners. Um, it is fascinating to see the day to day world of, of the 18th century. It is, it, but it is a world I think most people will find very alien, but also at the same time, a lot more familiar than maybe they think, uh, especially when you start to see advertisements mm-hmm. in newspapers. Uh, you see the humanity there that things with some, you know, people, we're very different society, but in some ways humanity doesn't change. And I love to read the ones about apprentices running away or yeah. absconding with yeah. clothing and the way they're described is quite humorous. Yeah. You know, has a down look. Yeah. Is uh, pock pitted, as they said, small pock pitted. Yeah. Well, and the other, you know, interesting can be, uh, you know, when, like if you turn like a place like Alexandria, or you know, especially if it's something like in New York, when a ship comes in and would advertise what sort of wares, you know, sort of an indication of what was being sold and what was popular, because it somebody spent a lot of money to make that initial investment to bring those goods from overseas, mm-hmm. and so you know, it would imply some sort of market demand. Um, can be really interesting to see what at least somebody thought would sell in yeah. in some of these cities. Really interesting. But um, to get back to alcohol, because that's people like that. Um, tell me about the rum. You know, we, we mentioned a little bit that there had been uh, a, 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 a rum run. Rum run? Rum back in February of yeah. 2018. I don't remember if we talked about that too much. So why were we doing rum? Yeah, that came through our development department. Joe Bondi, our senior VP there, came to me and said, can you guys make rum? And I said, well, I think we probably could, but why? Because we're a whiskey distillery. And he said, well, 
Mount Vernon is about to publish Washington's Barbados Diaries. So when Washington was about 17, he Mm -hmm. went to Barbados with his older brother, Lawrence. It's his only trip outside of North America and exposure to sea travel and markets in the Caribbean and the sugar and rum culture. So uh, that was we were hoping to sell some rum to raise money Mm -hmm. for that book publishing. And that's what we did. And so uh, it was exciting to do something different. And so um, once again, you go to the experts on this because we don't know how to make rum and uh, contacted Lisa and she she told me her thoughts on all that and what to do. And she also recommended we contact another uh, distiller, Maggie Campbell, who is at Privateer Rum in the Boston area. And, and so she said, talk, let's talk to Maggie and we'll collaborate. We'll get it all together and we'll we'll do this project. And that's what happened. So we ended up getting 100% molasses from a source that Maggie knew, which was a one mill source. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a conglomerate. We, we looked to go to um, Barbados and get it, but we found out that a lot of those people buy their raw material from other places. <laughs> it's a modern market. Yeah, yeah. So to avoid all the customs and all that, we ended up getting it through a supplier that was more reachable to us. And then we set up and set fermenters. So the only problem we had was it was about nine degrees in the distillery. <laughs> when we did this. And fermentation doesn't move well when it's that cold. So uh, uh, Lisa was there on the front end, had to go back to her day job, which is very busy. Maggie came in after that, and we worked together, but the fermentations were slowing down. So before Lisa took off to her other work, she said, go to the pet store and buy aquarium heaters. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. And she goes, I've done this before because she had been involved in fermenting in wood and fermenting mm-hmm. in different conditions and different buildings. So we hung those aquarium heaters upside down in the fermenters to keep them moving. And we had to set up basically space heaters and run our boiler constantly. So there were long, long days into the, into the night to keep everything warm enough to ferment. And it all worked. And so I think in a way one could laugh, oh, you're using some modern equipment. Well, we're thinking outside the box. In the 18th century, if you're a distiller and you don't think outside the box, you probably don't get your work done. Mm-hmm. And so you had to adjust to ambient temperatures, and that's what we did using some tools that, you know, obviously they wouldn't have had then. But they would have had a boiler, mm-hmm. and they would have run that. So we got through the fermentation and ran that rum off, and it came off very nice, and we had some of it bottled as silver rum, unaged rum. Mm-hmm. And I believe you've seen the bottles, maybe mm-hmm. you have. And it's a 1750s style bottle, which is really beautiful. And m- that was not retailed. That went basically to fund that, yeah. that publication and the event that we did around that. But we did barrel the remainder. So I have two 53-gallon barrels that have that rum aging. They're used bourbon barrels. And we're going to check them again here soon and see where they are. So we plan to fundraise with a little of that, but also because there'll be enough bottles, we'll probably release some of that through our retail shop. Mm. So that's something coming down the road. Nice. Well, what, what else is uh, sort of... Uh, stewing, or I should say fermenting, uh, in, in, in that creative little brain of yours? Well, a couple things that we're thinking about to make sure we do everything that was done here when Washington was alive. If you look in the inventory of the mansion after his death, there's a barrels of persimmon brandy. Mm. So we've done peach brandy, we've done apple brandy. Those are the two other products that we know he did there. They're, you know, the gallon productions right there in the record. But that's one on our list, persimmon brandy. And I'd like to revisit some malt whiskey down the road. We did make single malt whiskey back in 2012, and that was a special project, uh, again, for fundraising that involved three Scottish distillers 
And our uh, our consultant then, Dave Pickrell, who Dave sadly passed away two or three months ago, and Dave was a giant in the industry and uh, did so much in craft distilling world. But uh, we brought uh, Dave together with uh, John Campbell from Lafroig, uh, Andy Cant, who was at Cardew, it's where all the Johnny Walkers made mm-hmm. and the other Cardew whiskeys, and Bill Lumsden at Glen Warren G. And uh, they were great to work with, but it was a bit nerve-wracking, too, you know, because we did the fermentation up front, uh, but that meant they shipped malt from Scotland. Mm. So I, I received about 3,000 pounds of Scottish malt, and um, some of it peated, but most of it not. And I think I may have talked a little bit about it, but that's where I pulled rank at that point, being a miller. I ground all that myself in the mill. It was like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity mm-hmm. to grind that malt. And then uh, we set the fermenters per instructions that Dave had done with us. And with with the scotch, we can't call it scotch, but mm-hmm. with the single malt, you don't ferment off the grains. So all the solids had to be sifted out. And in large Scottish distilleries, those fermenters have a big perforated bottom where it allows to catch the grain as the, as the true wash or wart drops mm-hmm. through. What we had to do was hand sift because we're 18th century. So our millwright, Gus Kiorpus, built us a hand sift screen. <laughs> and so every bit of that, we were sifting solids away. Mm-hmm. It, it took a lot of labor. But the nerve-wracking moment was was the three Scottish guys show up. And they I have a photo of them standing around one of the fermenters. And we're just like, if we mess this up, the trip was for nothing. Yeah. And they tasted of it and smelled of it. And they said it's right where it should be. So we were greatly relieved. And then we ran those stills for two or three days with them, and we made a very small batch that was, uh, I think, 60 bottles total. Wow. And the other unique thing we did, which I'd like to get more into down the road with some of our whiskeys, is uh, we were tying all this history together. So we know James Anderson was Scottish. Mm -hmm. So it's the 100th year of the Scotch Whiskey Association in, in, in the year we did that. And so we know that Washington loved Madeira. Mm hmm so we finished that whiskey in Madeira cast. Mm-hmm. So the casts made their own journey because, as you know, many bourbon and whiskey casts go from America mm-hmm. to Scotland. They're recoupered and they age scotch in them. So this little barrels that Bill sent, the first were reconditioned bourbon barrels of a certain size. And then he sent over these smalls to do the finishing in, which were Madeira barrels. And um, so it was aged two years, eight months, and reconditioned used oak, and then it was finished for four months in the Madeira. And the other neat thing about it was we ended up with two types of single malt because the first pass through the still, that first run with those gentlemen, it tasted so good to them, and it came as coming off on average 103 proof, they just said, let's just barrel that one pass through the still. So it didn't even get doubled. And then the next batch, we did double. So basically, we had a distiller's reserve or distiller's select and then a limited edition, so two two different mm-hmm. bottles, two different labels. And so we've auctioned a number of those as sets, as you can imagine people yeah. would like that. So all that being said, to say this, every time I see John Campbell, I keep saying we need to do something again. And Bill said to me years ago, he goes, this shouldn't be the only thing we do here. They're very busy men. Yeah. So I'm hoping down the road that we could pull some project together with them and do something unique there, maybe a little more than last time as far as volume. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, if uh, if our if our uh, listeners are interested in this, uh, feel free to send in uh, emails and support that we can take to uh, our our president and uh, and and these gentlemen because it would uh, you know 
help promote the effort. Uh, I'm always happy to have more alcohol on the estate. Yeah. It makes my job more fun. You want your cellar to be full. I, uh, I mean, I, I haven't actually gotten to the point of having my own cellar just yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely cellar curious and open to having, uh, having that opportunity, yes. Yeah. My home is a little uh, collection of all that we've made here. You know, I have a, nice. a little bit of everything, but uh, it's really an honor to work on these things. You know, uh, years ago when the distillery opened, I never knew we'd go down the different roads that we have. In, yeah. And it's it's a great story to tell. I mean, we we have one of the best stories to tell, frankly, because it is the real story. Mm-hmm. It's not a marketing story. It's uh, what happened here in 1797, 98, 99. And it also continued after Washington died, as you know, because his yeah. nephew inherited the distillery and continued for a little more, not as successfully. But it's really great to bring people in, craft distillers, other people work there. They love it. Yeah. They love to get back to the you know, grittiness of distilling that way. And along the way, we learn so much from working with them. So. Well, and I think what, what most impresses me with you all besides the actual product uh, is, like you said, the, the, the stories that you've managed to come up with talent. So even when we're distilling something that technically Washington's distillery might not have ever produced, it's still got a Washington story to it. And, you know, that just makes my job as a storyteller so much easier uh, that you have you provided us this tableau that we can then work with when we bring in these groups, uh, and and you know can just you, you, I just have to feed them alcohol, and, and <laughs> if I, I find if other people drink, they laugh more, uh, and I'm funnier. They're receptive. Yeah, right? it's this weird thing. So you know, I, I I just have to serve them alcohol and tell them a story, you know, that you've already given for me to do, and then all of a sudden it it, it works brilliantly. Cause well, well, the rum's a good. One right there because people have asked and they mm-hmm. will ask, well, why did you do rum? They didn't do rum here. It's all true. But part of it allows us now to tell the story of rum in the colonial period. Mm-hmm. And we know Washington bought rum in Alexandria, and it was often given out as rations to enslaved workers and others during harvest time. Mm-hmm. And so it's incentive. And so alcohol was part of the culture, as you know. So it's, yeah. it, that allows us to open the door to say, yes, we didn't, he didn't make it here, but it was definitely woven through the fabric of Mount Vernon, the estate, and was for years. And you can look at his military career, which I know you, you've studied a lot. Um, rum rations and, and whiskey yeah. rations were critical. I mean, they were serving whiskey at Valley Forge. Well, I mean, Washington yeah. loses his first ever uh, political election because he didn't, he didn't provide treat. enough whiskey. Uh, and, you know, soldiers, I mean, more so Europeans, for what that's worth. But uh, you know, not getting your rum ration was considered fairly legitimate cause to mutiny because that was part of the contract you had mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, the Army when you joined was that you were going to get X amount of food, X amount of clothing, and, and X amount of rum and, or, or alcohol or, you know, you know, a certain amount of alcohol. Uh, hard liquor or in the absence of that, you know, an equivalent amount of of, uh, of uh, cider or beer or whatever. Uh, and if you didn't get it, that was breach of contract. Yeah. And, you know, we call it a mutiny, but, I, you know, a lot of them just thought of it as work stoppage. Mm-hmm. You know, that their, their contract hadn't been honored, and until they got it, they, they, they weren't going to work. And, and I think it just goes to show how, how interwoven the story of alcohol is to the Western world and yeah. in the colonies here. So we love telling that part of the story. It also lets us highlight an aspect of Washington, which I know you do with the leadership programs. Is People think of him as a military man mm-hmm. 
or I, I don't like to use the word politician as regards Washington, but as a statesman mm-hmm. and leader, the whole time that's going on, he's a businessman. Yeah. And I love that about him. And so our sites, the, the ones that I'm in charge of, the farm, the blacksmith shop, and the mill and distillery, we really get to represent that for people that visit Mount Vernon. And I think for a lot of people, they come here and they learn all these aspects of him, and they'll say out at the distillery, I never knew that he was involved yeah. in all this in farming and business. And so I always like to talk about the way he diversified the economy here, too, because mm-hmm. a lot of Virginians and people in Maryland got stuck in tobacco too long, and yeah. many of them lost it all, whereas he gets out of tobacco in 1766 and starts to have a myriad of income streams. Uh, doesn't mean it was easy for him, because you can see in the record where he talks about sometimes the cash flow and things to be done. It's difficult in the 18th century, but that, along with the commercial fisheries, brought him a lot of income. Yeah. Um, but I do think with the production of the distillery, the, what we tie in there is that the volume there, the 11,000 gallons the, uh, in 1799, and, and the fact, just like today, it's a commodity high in demand, yeah. um, brought in the most money. Uh, I think we've run some of the numbers, uh, which I know you do too, because there's a lot of more economic study of Washington going on these days yeah. with the library, that from what I've read, and you know, about 1797 prior to the distillery, I think the estate was earning about $1,800. And then you look at the record in 1799, the entire distillery made $1,858. <laughs> and so People uh, like alcohol. They like alcohol. Um, so anyway, anyway you slice it, it's one of the neater stories at Mount Vernon. Yeah. And we have a lot of stories to tell, but it's, it's, it's fun and an honor to tell this one and to be able to make it. Yeah. And uh, that's why, as you said earlier, you know, when we get together again, uh, we should delve a little bit more into what we make and, and flavor profiles of that. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, what did whiskey taste like in 1770, yeah. uh, unaged? You know, because yeah. uh, I, I will let you know, though, thankfully, that the unaged is better than it used to be. <laughs> you know, because the early batches were admittedly yeah, rough. Were, yeah. Because yeah. we, were, we were learning and, and, and we've changed a lot over time and, and gotten better at running stills. And, uh, you know, again, as I mentioned, uh, Lisa's work with us with the fermentation is so much better, thanks to her, that it leads to better alcohol. Yeah. Cleaner alcohol. So I think we can all agree that's a good thing. It is a good thing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show with us, and uh, we will see you again soon, sir. Yeah, let's schedule up our next uh, round and have some rounds, I think. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.